remain standing for our second epistle lesson from Romans 2, starting in verse 12. This is also the sermon text. Pay close attention to God's word. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Please bless the reading and hearing and preaching of your word, God. We confess that we need your help to understand it. We need spiritual minds to understand and believe what you say. And so do that. Accomplish that in us even this hour. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in today's passage, Paul continues his argument. The last time we were in Romans, we stopped at verse 11 there in chapter 2, which states that there is no partiality with God. God's judgment is equitable, impartial, unbiased. There's no favoritism with God. That means he's going to judge Jews and Gentiles, religious people and non-religious people, churchgoers and non-churchgoers, Bible readers and non-Bible readers, baptized people and unbaptized people, covenant members and covenant non, non-covenant members by an impartial standard. The word partiality in verse 11 is a in, very interesting word. The best we can tell, as we look at the evidence, it was coined, it's one word there in the Greek, and it was coined, it looks like, by Christians, even by the New Testament authors. It shows up in a, in a Jewish text at about the same time, but we don't know whether that dates before or after, the, maybe after the New Testament, it appears. It's, it's one word made up of two words smashed together. And literally, this compound word means face-receiving. Those are the two words that kind of get put together. Receiving the face. It's actually an Old Testament idiom, except in the Old Testament, they kept it two words, right? two separate words, face-receiving. When they referred to partiality, they called it face-receiving. Why, why would they, why would they to, to say that there's no partiality with God is to say that God is not a face receiver. Can you see how that works? An impartial judge is no receiver of pitiful faces. 
He's no respecter of sob stories. He's not moved by the superficial tears or by unrepentant regret or by sanctimonious posturing or by smarmy sweet talk. So in verse 11, Paul uses this newly minted compound word, perhaps Paul himself coined it, that means face receiving. And he says that there's no face receiving with God. Now, since today's text is so closely related to the passage that comes before it, and since it's been a few weeks, let's just, let me just reread the previous paragraph that it's tied to. Listen to verses 6 to 11. God will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through steadfast endurance in good work, but anger and wrath to those who act out of selfish ambition and who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress on every human soul who works what is evil, on the Jew first and also on the Greek. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who works what is good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For there is no partiality, no face receiving with God. Paul's argument here is that the Jews, the religious types, are in the same boat as the Gentiles. The non-religious type, or maybe the pagan religious type. The, the physical descents of Abraham don't have a decisive religious advantage here. They, they're not going to arrive on judgment day with advanced credit because they are Jews. Their history and heritage, their rituals and rites, their sacrifices and service, their promises and privileges, their laws and traditions and covenants and blessings All their Jewishness, all of their religious fervor will do nothing for them in itself when they stand before the judgment seat. The judgment seat that every soul will stand before. What's needed on the final day, you see, is a living, saving faith in Jesus. The kind of faith that produces good works. God will give eternal life to those who in this life seek glory, honor, immortality, and peace through steadfast endurance in good works. That's what the faith that saves looks like. It's not the works that save, it's the faith that saves, and that faith leads to those works inevitably, inexorably, without exception. In verse 12, Paul anticipates skepticism. He knows some will challenge his no partiality with God thesis. It's as if someone asked Paul at the end of verse 11, are you sure, Paul? Have you thought this one through, that that the Jews don't have an edge on judgment day? Hasn't God given them special attention for many, many years now? How, How can they be in the same boat as everyone else? Have you forgotten that the Jews have the law of Moses? Now, This objection could come from the mouth of a religious Jew just as easily as it could come from the mouth of a non-religious Gentile. The Jewish objector insists that possessing the law of Moses gives him a a leg up on judgment day. He he assumes that being a Jew gives him a a 50% coupon or employee discount or something like that. And the Gentile objector might object, he might argue, 
that not possessing the law of Moses puts him at a a distinct disadvantage on the final day. How how am I supposed to even know what the standard is here if I haven't been given this? And Paul addresses all the angles of this objection. The possession of the Mosaic law and, and more broadly the scriptures doesn't give the Jews an upper hand in any way. Verse 12, he affirms that God will impartially judge people who do not have Scripture, and God will impartially judge those who do have Scripture. And those are the first two main points in your outline. And he establishes both of them in verse 12, and then spends the rest of the paragraph unpacking it, the implications. The first point, God will impartially judge people who do not have Scripture is established in the first half of that, that verse, 12. The first sentence of, your trans, of the translation on your handout, handout. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. The law here refers, strictly speaking, to the Mosaic law. Those without the law are those without the inspired scriptures, without God's special revelation where he reveals who he is, what his character is, and what he requires. Those who reject God without any knowledge of or access to his word will perish. This is talking about eternal death. They will be condemned to hell, but it won't be because they failed to keep the written law in, in God's holy book that they, you know, that they didn't ever see. It, no, Paul says they'll be condemned apart from the law in God's word. That's not what's going to come down on them. And this raises the question, well then on what basis will God condemn them? If you're going to if you're going to if they're not going to perish for breaking the law that God gave to Moses, then why what why will they perish? What law, what standard will they be judged by? Paul Paul's answer is that they'll be condemned for not doing the law that was written on their hearts. We see this in verse 14, the first part of verse 15. But before we skip over 13 and go to 14, we need to briefly look at 13 before we come back and look at it, examine it more closely later. Verse 13 is the reason Paul launches into his argument in verse 14 and following. In verse 13 says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it's the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. Now, Paul seems to be making things worse, right? Um, he's doing the opposite of answering the objection, it appears. And he knows that his objectors, he knows how they'll respond. At the end of verse 13, Paul, again, if you have to be a doer of the law to be declared righteous on, the, on, the, on judgment day, doesn't this mean that those who don't have the law are at a disadvantage? You know, those who don't have the scriptures are disadvantaged? How can I do the law if I have never heard it, if I don't have it? Now, Paul answers, oh, but you do have it. Everyone has it, God's law. That is, not the Mosaic law, but God's law. God wrote it, excuse me, (coughs) God wrote it on your heart. 
even the most non-religious unbeliever, even the most far-flung pagan, proves that he has the law of God written on his heart whenever he chooses to do the, the right thing instead of the wrong thing, which all people do at times. Paul's appealing to that. That's what he says in verse 14 in the beginning of 15. For whenever Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the requirements of the law, they, though not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So they don't have the law, they do have the law at the same time. They don't have Moses, but they have God's law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, unbelievers who never hear, read the Bible won't be condemned by the laws written in Scripture. They'll be condemned by what God has permanently etched on the walls of their own hearts. Here Paul introduces what older theologians unabashedly called natural law. Natural law is a vital biblical concept that, that kind of fell on hard times during the 20th century. And unfortunately, even a lot of Reformed theologians have attacked the doctrine of natural law during the last century or so. But natural, natural law is... It's an important biblical truth. It refers to the universal moral law that all humans know simply by virtue of being human and living in the world that God created, the one that God made around them. Natural law is not independent of God's law in the scriptures, not at all. Natural law is reflected in the word of God. Natural law is just objective reality. It's the way God created things. And his creation reflects his character, who he is and what he requires. And the word of God reflects that natural law. It's reflected in the laws of the Old Testament and New Testament. God's law revealed in scripture and God's law revealed in nature are not two different laws, like two parallel laws or something like that, because they both reflect the character of the one true God, the same God. They're both revelations from God, two revelations from one God. We call one special revelation, one natural revelation or general revelation. And so, so one is revealed by God through the Scripture, special revelation, the other through creation, natural revelation. So natural law is just as much God's law as the law of Moses because God is the one who reveals his natural law to all humans, both outside of them in nature but also inside of them on their hearts. He's the one who writes it there. People who have never read the Bible know by nature, Paul says. You see that phrase, by nature, in verse 14? They know by nature things, you know, that, that things like murder and theft and homosexuality and lying are wrong. They, they know that life is sacred, that, that they shouldn't take other people's property, they shouldn't deceive others, they shouldn't fornicate. They, they know that courage and integrity are virtues because God has written these things on their hearts. Abraham's encounter with Abimelech is a great illustration of this. This, of this universal knowledge that God gives 
even unbelievers, uh, this law that's written on every human heart. In Genesis 20, when, a, when Abraham goes down to Gerar, he fears for his life. Remember, he's afraid that, that the king, King Abimelech, is going to kill him so that he can take Sarah, his wife. So, so what's Abraham do? What's his response? Well, he tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. Then Abimelech takes Sarah into his house, but God tells him in a dream, now this is, this is another man's wife. Specifically, it's Abraham's wife. And naturally... Abimelech wants to have a few words with Abraham when he finds this out. And he says to Abraham in verse 9 of chapter 20, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me, listen to this, things that ought not to be done. Right? Abimelech needed a dream from God to know that Sarah was Abraham's wife, but he didn't need special revelation to know that what Abraham did ought not to be done. It was morally detestable, that kind of deception. No good reason for it. There are just some things that you ought not to do, that that ought not to be done, no matter where you live on the globe or what tribe you're from, what age you live in. Abraham did something that everyone knows is wrong, although we might confuse ourselves about these things as we suppress the truth. And Abraham knew it was wrong, though it appears that he was suppressing his knowledge of the truth, at least for a time. C.S. Lewis appeals to the natural law in the opening pages of his apologetic work, Mere Christianity. He observes that when people argue or quarrel with one another, they typically appeal to an objective standard outside of themselves, and they assume, they expect that the person they're arguing with is going to recognize that objective standard. Lewis writes, they say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or, that's my seat, I was there first. Or, let him alone, or leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. The person making these remarks, Lewis says, is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong, and there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are, end quote. So Gentiles may not be in possession of the holy laws of Scripture, but they've got something like it. God, through his natural order, has inscribed a similar law on their hearts. Everyone has a natural built-in sense of right and wrong. Everyone knows by nature that there's a moral code based in objective reality outside of me. And everyone knows that there's a God who will judge every person by this natural law. One of the reasons, we're not going to get into it right now, one of the reasons natural law is so important is that it 
it paves the way for understanding the gospel. You, you, can, you can tell somebody that they're, that, that they're in sin if they've never read scripture and, and, and they know it. You're appealing to something that God's written on their heart and they know it and the cross is the answer to that problem that they know. They don't know by nature the cross, the gospel, but they know by nature that they've broken God's law. Now, of course, we know that the, uh, the human conscience doesn't always work properly. We saw that with, with Abraham, perhaps. In the physical realm, objects, you know, in the, in the physical world, it got objects, physical objects have no choice but to obey the laws of physics. All right, we might experience something where it seems like they didn't, right? That shouldn't have happened. But, but the laws of thermodynamics constantly demand and constantly get obedience from all their physical subjects, their created subjects. But in the moral realm, people have choices and people are sinful, so the law of God revealed in nature is constantly being violated. In our unrighteousness, we suppress our knowledge of the truth. Paul talks about this in, in a few different places already in Romans. You know, at the end of Romans 1, that everyone knows that there's going to be this judgment of our unrighteousness. Everyone knows. But, but we suppress this knowledge because I want to live by my law. I want to be self-governed. I want to obey my rules. And whenever we replace the law of God, the one written in Scripture, the one written on our hearts, whenever we replace God's law with our law, we sear our consciences. We further compromise our ability to recognize the truth that God has stamped on our souls when he created us. And yet, even a seared conscience bears witness to the truth, and it will bear witness to the truth on the final day, Paul says. A seared conscience still recognizes God's law, even if its voice has been muffled and marginalized and drowned out by the idols and, and the self-deception and the sin that entangle. On judgment day, unbelievers will be condemned by their own conscience, which is another witness that bears testimony to the truth of God's law there in verse 15. The second part of verse 15 says, their conscience joins in bearing witness and their alternating thoughts accuse, but also defend them. Accusing is the main thing here, but there's some defense every now and then when they do what's right. When our inborn knowledge of God's law leads unbelievers to do what's right, their conscience and their, their thoughts defend them. They confirm that they're doing what God requires. When they disobey God's moral code, their consciences and their thoughts have the opposite effect. They accuse them. In verse 16, Paul says that all this self-accusing and even some self-defending thrown in will culminate on judgment day when God peers into the soul and evaluates not only our outward actions, but also the secret idols and the secret places of the heart. On that day, he's going to agree. He's going to agree with all the self-accusations of every person's conscience. And everyone who stands before him without a savior will perish in hell forever. So what about unbelievers who do have the scriptures? 
God will impartially judge them as well. The second half of verse 12 says, and all who sinned in the law, that is all God-haters who lived in the realm of the, of the Mosaic law, all unbelievers who regularly heard God's commands read from Scripture in a setting like this and others, will be judged by the law. Some translations say under the law. And it's, the idea is that the law will come down on them. That was revealed to Moses at Sinai. People, the people of God, those who have those who have, hold, and hear the word of God, the scriptures, Paul says, they will be condemned by the law that is in God's word. They will be condemned by the law in God's word. Unless they do it, right? So, unless they're doers of it. There's two kinds of people of God, two kinds of covenant people, two kinds of baptized people, those that do the law of God and those that do not. Those who walk with Jesus in obedience and those who do not. And so it's not enough to have it. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to hold it. You gotta do it. Specifically in verse 13, they will be condemned for not doing the law that they heard. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. The second half of of verse 13 there has been a stumbling block for many interpreters, many Protestant Bible scholars, because they, you know, just, just read it, they, they hear Paul saying that God will grant salvation, he'll declare people righteous on the last day on the basis of their works. Is that what he's saying? It's, it's led some commentators to, conclu- to conclude that Paul must be speaking hypothetically. In other words, Paul isn't saying that doers of the law will actually be declared righteous on Judgment Day because no one can actually do the law. He's only saying that theoretically, if, 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 a, person, if a person actually did the law perfectly, he'd be declared righteous on Judgment Day, but we know it's not ever going to happen. Now, scholars who hold that position, they appeal to what Paul says a chapter later in chapter 3, Verse 20, where he says, by the works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Now, so no one will be declared righteous before God by doing the works of the law, Paul says there in 3.20. So does that settle it? Is that end of discussion? Does does 3.20 force us to conclude that Paul is only being theoretical or hypothetical in 2.13 when he says that the doers of the law will be declared righteous? Now, some say yes, I say no, it, it, for several reasons. One, it just doesn't seem like he's being theoretical. Or high. He, there, there's a way in Greek and a lot of other languages to have a, you know, the subjunctive mood to say this is hypothetical or something like that. Or there's a word he could have just thrown in there, two-letter word, uh, that would have made it more hypothetical, but he doesn't do that. But more important, there, there, there's a significant difference in the wording of these two verses, 2.13 and 3.20. 2.13 doesn't say that anyone can or will be declared righteous on the basis of doing the law. It only states that, the do, that doers of the law are the ones, in fact, who will be declared righteous. It doesn't say anything about the grounds of that righteousness, 
we know, and Paul, Paul knows because he taught us, that every believer will be declared righteous on judgment day by faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of the obedience of Christ alone. That's, that's a rock-solid assumption for Paul. But it's also true, and verse 13 affirms this, that those who are declared righteous now and on that day will be the ones who obeyed the righteous requirements of God's moral law during this life because everyone who is truly saved by faith in Jesus alone will live a life of obedience. Not perfect obedience, but real obedience. Saved people will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, Paul says in Romans 8, 4. It says, Christ saved us through the cross, quote, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, in our lives, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who experience the saving power of God also experience the sanctifying power of God. Those who are declared righteous in Christ are those who walk in His Spirit. Christians are doers of the law. Doing the law doesn't earn you anything with God. You can't merit eternal life through your obedience. But if there's no obedience, if there's no holiness, there's no eternal life either. When God gives one, he always gives the other. Plus, Scripture actually gives us examples of doers of the law. Luke 1 says that Elizabeth and Zacharias, that John the Baptist's parents, were both righteous, quote, were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Strong statement there. Does this mean Zacharias and Elizabeth were sinless? Oh, no, of course not. They've been a, they would have been the first to tell you. It, it just means that they were covenant keepers. They loved God's law. And did it. And they repented when they failed. But they did God's law, however imperfectly. And all of us are quite imperfect in our obedience. Even Zacharias and Elizabeth. But they were on an upward and inward trajectory toward God. Like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. Now we know of course, again, I'm going to say it again. Their righteous standing before God was on the basis of grace alone through faith alone, apart from works, but flowing from that grace was their obedience to God's commandments. Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of of the commandments of God. Now, this is a fascinating verse because circumcision is also a commandment of God, right, in the, in the Mosaic law. And here we see Paul distinguishing between the ceremonial law, which is no longer in effect, and the moral law, which still applies, the moral law in God's law that, that reflects that natural law. And what matters, Paul says, is keeping that law, keeping God's law. Galatians 5, 6 says something similar. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. What's the next three words? But faith working through love. Not faith only 
as James says in that challenging passage that Bobby read from James 2. Not faith only, but faith working through love. No dead faith will do. Our Lord's brother asks us the question in James 2.4. What, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? A person is not justified by faith only, by faith in isolation, but by a living faith that is accompanied by works. It is the doers of the law, and the doers of the law alone, who will be declared righteous. Everything, back to our text, everything in verses 12 to 15 will culminate, as Paul says in verse 16, on the day when God will judge the secret things of people through Jesus Christ in accordance with my gospel. And that's not just true for unbelievers. This is true for everyone. God will impartially judge your secret things on judgment day. He won't limit himself to evaluating external works, the ones that, you know, that, that saw the light of day, as it were, or even just the external works in, in darkness. His penetrating eye will pierce through what everyone else can see and, and pry into the secret places of the heart. On that day, God will expose and scrutinize your secret motives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, the anatomy of every heart, uh, not the physical one, but the anatomy of every soul will be laid bare. The true nature of your inner holiness will be on display. And all your idols will be exposed. All your worthless and evil works will be burned up. And, and, you'll be, and then you'll receive praise from God for whatever good works remain. A chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says something similar. He writes, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The, the, the day of judgment will disclose it. Each one's work will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So if you're a believer, God will see your hidden parts, and, and he will see in there the pure motives, the genuine righteousness that you cultivated by God's grace, by God's Spirit working in you in this life. He will see the holiness that the Spirit accomplished. He'll also see the idols that you harbored, the sin that you didn't drive out, just as Israel did not drive out all the Canaanites. He'll see the darkness that lingered, the, the remains of the old Adam that you didn't kill. But if you're a believer, he'll see evidence that you're a new creation in Christ, that you were bought and paid for completely 
by the blood of the Lamb, that, that you were a covenant keeper, that you strived to please Him, though quite imperfectly. You'll see that you kept His commandments. Your fruit and faithfulness, your good works and your pureness of heart, your peacemaking and, and mercy-giving, your hungering and thirsting for righteousness, your working out your salvation with fear and trembling, your faith in Christ that worked itself out in love, all of this will verify that you belong to Jesus, that you had saving faith, that you were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And because you belong to Jesus, God won't condemn you for the idols and the wickedness and the secret places of the heart. It won't be counted against you. He won't condemn you for all the nasty stuff in the hidden parts, in the secret places, because he already condemned Jesus for all of it, for every bit of it. All of your sin and depravity was nailed to the cross of Jesus. All of your appalling thoughts and deeds and motives were paid for on the cross. You don't have to pay for any of it anymore on Judgment Day. There'll be no legal case against you. No, no transgression that anyone can bring up to accuse you of before God. No grounds whatsoever for condemnation for you. God will look at you as though you were a perfect law keeper. You weren't. You were a law keeper, imperfect law keeper. You obeyed. You kept God's commandments. But God will look at you through the lens of, of Jesus, the perfect law keeper, and account that to you. That's what he will see. And that's what you will feel and experience with an overwhelming joy and overwhelming gratitude that will lead to eternal praise for what God has accomplished and done for you. But, but, there's, but there's a more immediate good news for you. God already looks at you this way. Right now, it's true. Let that sink in. It's all, he looks, looks at you as if you are that righteous one. The righteous one, Jesus Christ. As if you have his righteousness because you do. He's been, it's not a legal fiction. It's not even just as if. You do have it. It belongs to you now. God always looks at you this way. From this time forth, from now to the, to the day of judgment, he looks at you this way if you know Jesus and walk with him in obedience. Now, you haven't received your reward yet, right? You don't have, the, you don't have your crown yet. You're still waiting for your praise from God for those good works that he will praise, the ones that don't get burned up on judgment day. But you've already received now the final verdict, your final verdict. You've been declared righteous in Jesus already. Yeah, there's a not yet aspect. There's more to come. 
you're no longer in any way, as a Christian, under the wrath, under the condemnation of God because he's taken all your unrighteousness upon himself. He's absorbed all of it, all of the punishment that it deserved, and he's given you his righteousness instead. Christian, this is, this is great news. Smile. This is great. And so what's your response to this? What's our response? How will you live before God? The God who has given you so much now and who has so much more in store for you. What's, what's your response? Well, do his word. Honor him in the secret places of your heart. The most suitable response to God's goodness and God's grace is gratitude and obedience. Gratitude and obedience and joy. We can throw a lot of things in there. Let's just talk about gratitude and obedience. So don't wait for God to expose your secret sins and then burn them up. Don't wait for him to reveal these things on, on judgment day. Don't presume upon the grace of God. That, that's what that means, is, is you're presuming upon the grace of God, which is dangerous. Get rid of your wickedness now. Mortify the sins that entangle you today. Destroy your idols immediately, lest they drag you off into sin that leads to death. What really matters is that you do God's word and you honor God in your secret places. And so I can't think of a more fitting way to end this sermon, maybe some of you are already thinking this, than by quoting, by reading the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray. We love you, Lord, and we rejoice in the hope that we have in our resurrection from the dead and our standing before you. And it's because we will be standing before the judge who is also our savior, our redeemer, and our advocate. And so we look forward to that day. Help us now, while we're still in this world, in this life, Help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to produce instead deeds of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. And again, we confess that we need you to accomplish this in us just as much as we needed you to save us in the first place. We need your grace 100% from beginning to end in our salvation and in our sanctification. So please give it to us. Please sanctify us. Give us willing spirits, spirits, willing hearts to do your word all the way down to the most secret places 
to the most secret things. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.